this a bit higher, please? <coughs> okay. Thank you. I want to thank Caleb and team. Uh, very enjoyable worship ministry. For many old folks like me, and there are a few of you here, uh, you will recognize that many of the songs we can't sing. And uh, although there are, there are some with old words, but the tunes are new. But the thing about not being able to sing the songs is when we had this uh, leading of worship by all the musicians here this morning, I thoroughly enjoyed the singing and the tune. And uh, they went very well with the words which accompanied them. So thank you again for leading us in worship. This morning, uh, the topic we have is Jesus' compassion. It is a continuation of the uh, topic which we've had for the past few weeks here. And uh, I'm thankful that I can uh, be participant to this. I wanted to say good afternoon, everyone, because I'm so used to our 4.30 session at our church. So we start at 4.30 using uh, the small chapel at Helping Hand. It's called Mustard Seed Community Church. And whenever I do stand up, not always, I will say good afternoon, everyone. But this one is good morning, everyone. Thank you for, again, that I can come here. Do I need to press this uh, at all? No need. Okay, thank you. <laughs> All that God has uh, revealed to us about himself in the Bible finds fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And we read, first of all, from Hebrews 1, that Jesus Christ is the final, God's final word to us, as we read it in these opening verses in Hebrews 1. And we read together, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Today, as we start, I would like to look at two very important Old Testament passages on our topic, which are found in Exodus 34 and Psalm 103. Perhaps like you, like me, and you, some of you, uh, we have grown up thinking about the Old Testament, the Bible, as the first book of the Bible. Uh, and it is usually considered as one filled with wrath and judgment, doom and gloom, uh, warfare, punishment, atrocity, injustice. That's our main ideas of the Old Testament. And that the New Testament, for many of us, mainly promotes peace, unity, mercy, brotherly love, blessings, and success. I think you get the drift of it. 
And therefore, we, we tend to, to emphasize the dichotomy so that many of us, knowingly or unknowingly, end up as New Testament Christians. And we often uh, choose and pick Old Testament passages, but we forget what Jesus has said in Matthew chapter 5. We have Matthew 5 here, and Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, and until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What is so special about what is so special about this revelation? The God of the Bible is the God of the Old Testament and New Testament. And you find that as you you read this, the words of Jesus who appeared in New Testament times, that the words of Jesus uh, tells us that God reveals himself first and foremost as a merciful and compassionate God. And that he reveals himself right from the beginning of the Bible, right from the Old Testament, right through to Revelation. He doesn't reveal himself only as a compassionate God, in the New Testament. And the word mercy in the Old Testament or its English synonym compassion constitutes a, a fundamental attribute or a fundamental characteristic of God's revelation of his divine character. So we read in Exodus 33 that when Moses made this startling request of God and says, God, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. God hid him behind a rock and caused his glory to pass and made this proclamation of his divine name in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And this historic revelation which God made to man, Moses here, about 3,500 years ago, this thing keeps on going down. <laughs> it's a, oh, not, not. <laughs> made about 3,500 years ago, huh? Uh, God's revelation of himself to men. Okay, fine. Contains here in this, this particular passage two very important revelations of God's character. In the first six, in, the, in verse six, you find it contains five attributes of God. You look at the verse and it says, He is merciful, He is gracious, slow to anger full of steadfast love and faithfulness. And the second part, which is in verse 7, it describes to us 
how all these attributes of God, they have to do with his divine love and compassion, how these attributes are manifest in his dealings with his people. Specifically, he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. True, he is the God of judgment, of wrath against sin, but his essential nature is one of compassion, is one of forgiveness. So when God chose to reveal his glory or his essential nature to Moses, Moses says, I want to see you, I want to see your glory. The first thing that God said about himself was that he is merciful and he is compassionate. And his calling to Israel, to his people, God had declared in Jeremiah 31 that I will be the God of all the families of Israel. They will be my people. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. And you think this verse is from the New Testament? No, it's from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31. To show to us that God's care and compassion is embedded in his loving kindness and his love for us. The creator of heaven and earth, the one who inhabits eternity, the one who is beyond our human comprehension, the one whom we always say is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, you know. He chose in this moment of history when a man, Moses, asked him, says, let me see you, let me know you, let me know what is your glory. He chose to reveal himself to Moses as the one who is first and foremost one with compassion and mercy. So the one who called Abraham, the one who um, raised up Moses, the one who delivered Israel from captivity in Egypt, that one God is first and foremost a compassionate God. The one who is merciful. And if we keep this revelation of God's compassion to mankind, we keep that in mind, then we will better appreciate that God, our Heavenly Father, is a relationship God. And because He is a relationship God, this is how He would treat us. He would not treat us with rules and regulations and laws, as we often talk about the laws of the Ten Commandments and the rules in Leviticus. He will not treat us as some may say, if you come late for church, we lock the door. Uh, you must come on time. Uh, you must wear proper shoes. Some, someone, I came in here this morning and someone joked. They said, all speakers must wear long sleeves. I said, next time I will do that, but I wear short pants. You know? <laughs> but you know I'm so used to my short pants. But the point is, he doesn't deal with us according to rules and regulations. He's the God who desires a relationship with us. He's a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And though he is sovereign, he is ruler, he is the lawmaker, he does not deal with us according to his laws. But in a relationship, first and foremost, 
of compassion, of mercy, of love and grace. And this is very important. So this brings us to the second passage, second important passage in the Old Testament, Psalm 103. First of all, in this first five verses, David sings of personal mercies which he had himself received. And you find that in these five, five verses, all that we need for life, all that you and I need for life, we think we need housing, we need clothes, we need shelter, we need wealth, we need success. Here the Bible tells us all that we need for life are these things. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my innermost being. Praise him, his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul. Forget not all his benefits. What are his benefits? Who forgives all your sins. Do you need that? I need that. Heals all your diseases. You need that? Well, as we grow older, we need more of that. Redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. The very essence which life is all about, God gives to us. In verse 5, he satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. I saw these young people up there, you know, the drummer having good fun playing, Caleb enjoying himself, the singer and all this. And I wish I was young again. I think some of you were looking down from there here saying about the same thing. I wish I was young again. I can come here, I can do my dance, I can sing with a clear voice, and uh, I can lead the congregation to enjoy ourselves. But here, the Lord says, He satisfies your desires with good things. Don't think of only good things you can't get. Huh? There are so many good things which you can get at whatever age you have. So He satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. You want to be young again as you are 50, 60, 70 years old, it's possible. Your youth will be renewed like the eagles because you find the satisfaction which the Lord gives to your life. No need to be all this outward thing, riding motorbikes and doing extreme sports and going skydiving. You don't have to do that. You can find the depth of the joy and the satisfaction which God gives to us. We learn forgiveness. We find healing in Him. We find joy in our relationship with Him. And so, in verse 1 to 5, David sings of all these personal mercies which he had received from the Lord. Then from verse 6 to 19, David magnifies the attributes of Jehovah as displayed in his dealing with his people. Now, you read out aloud this from verse 6, and I will keep quiet. Verse 6, the Lord works... The Lord is compassionate, gracious. He will not always accuse.
So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are. Summarize this passage, longish passage, wonderful passage, which we read again and again, and it tells us that his love is beyond measure. However he blesses us, however he satisfies us, there's a love which comes to us, which God gives to us, which is beyond measure. His forgiveness is without limit. As far as the east is from the west, you don't know where the east starts and you don't know where the west starts. You can just point your hand there, you can have a compass. But the distance that separates this thing is his forgiveness, which is without limit. He forgives us again and again and again. And he loves us in a very personal relationship. He loves us like our parents love us, like our loved ones loved us, but in a greater way because he loves us like children, like we are children. Why? Because it says here, he has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. Verse 14, he remembers that we are dust. So he loves us like children, because he knows how weak we are. If you come to the Lord God, and you say, God doesn't love me, God doesn't care for me, I can do everything on my own, you've taken a different approach to God. But if you recognize in humility that I am a creature, I've been created by the Lord, and he loves me like I know love in a very special way, because He cares for me and because he's a compassionate God and he knows that I'm made of dust. And we know we are made of dust. From day one, we are born to die. And when we grow older, we see death drawing nearer and nearer. But God loves us. Whatever our age, God loves us like a father loves children. And from verse 17 onwards to the end, David closes his wonderful psalm by calling upon all creatures in the universe to adore the Lord and to join with him in blessing Jehovah, the ever-gracious one. Praise the Lord. Let's read together. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord my soul. Allow me to make a few comments on this passage. I believe that in many ways this Psalm 103 is the, what you call the believer's benediction. A benediction is a blessing. Is the believer's benediction in response to God's benediction. What is God's benediction? God's benediction we saw earlier in Exodus 34. I'm a God of love and of faithfulness and of forgiveness and of care. And it is a believer's benediction, responding to God's benediction to us. The second thing we note in this psalm is that, I'm going to some poetic phrases. He awakens, the, the psalmist David awakens all the melodies of heaven and earth to honor the one and only living and true God. And according to C.H. Spurgeon, not the Spurgeon whom you know regularly, but the 18th century Spurgeon. C.H. Spurgeon, in his uh, commentary on the Psalms in his Treasury of David, 
Psalm 103 is the apple tree among the trees of the wood. Uh, we don't see many apple trees around here. We have traveled, you know. An apple tree among the, the trees of the wood. Its golden fruit has a flavor such as no fruit ever bears. Its sublime composition is a Bible in itself, says C.H. Spurgeon. You believe it? Perhaps you will read it again and again, Psalm 103, and you could agree with him. The third comment we want to make is that <clears throat> I think it is important for us when we look at scriptures, we don't only quote them to satisfy our Christianity, but we do read them and to imbibe them into our hearts so that they become part of our life. And if you read and reread these two passages, Exodus 34, Psalm 103, I believe that they are among the most important revelations of God to us in the Old Testament because we can see for ourselves the essential compassionate nature of God which he shows in his relationship to us. He's not a God who is far away. He's compassionate, he's loving, he's forgiving, but he doesn't touch us. But he's a God who is in relationship with us. He touches us, he forgives us, he cares for us. One more thing we want to recognize <clears throat> from this psalm is that we see in this psalm God's dealing with us not as a, just a one-time event. This is very important, especially for those of us who are believers, even older Christians. We were having a Bible discussion in the church and one older believer says, I don't think I need to know all this theology about God and who God is and what kind of a character. I only need to know Jesus died for me on the cross. He's come into my heart. He saved me. I'm going to heaven. Hallelujah. And I said, what about you know, discovering why Jesus died? No need, no need for me to know all that. Uh, how Jesus rose from the dead and why? No need all that. I just need to know that very thing. So the Christian experience with God can become a one-time experience. You receive Jesus Christ. When were you saved? When were you converted? Oh, you know the date and the time and the, even the place and all that. And that's it. And you don't want to get beyond that. And you don't want to progress on that. But we read in this psalm that throughout human history, although the people of Israel repeatedly sinned against God, he repeatedly forgave them. And he repeatedly pardoned them. Our relationship with God is never a one-time relationship. It is not a verse you should hide in your heart and that's it, I'm a Christian. But it is an ongoing one which the psalm, the passage in Exodus and many other passages become real to us and God becomes real to us because he has started this relationship with us. God forgives and he blesses us and he cleanses us of our sin repeatedly. If not, then First John 1 says, if we claim to be without sin, the next one, all right, we missed the one before that. 
Okay, First John 1 John 1.8, you all know by heart. If you claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then in Matthew, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or or sister who sins against me up to seven times and he thought it was perfect you know you forgive once okay can twice three times i think that's enough you know but i can do up to seven times and jesus answered i tell you not seven times but 70 times seven and we all know our arithmetic is 490 and do you start counting all your forgiveness of one person i think beyond 100 200 you've given up you've given up counting anymore because the forgiveness is all the time, repeated again and again. And there are many parts in the Bible, PowerPoint number eight, which tells us in the Psalms of God's forgiveness. Let's look at PowerPoint number nine. I want to make one very important observation before we move out from this first part of our message and we move on to part two. The first part of our message tells us that God's mercy and compassion are directed first and foremost. Who are they directed first and foremost? To me. Yes, to me. To God's people, to Israel. Yes, to God's people in Israel. But if you find, when you read the Old Testament, after Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you find the laws and the rules and the words and the covenant of the Old Testament sayings, statements, is that God's mercy and compassion are directed first and foremost, essentially, to the poor, to widows, to the fatherless or the orphans, to surgeoners, and to destitute. Did you know that Abraham was a surgeoner? never owned a land, he never had a land. Do you know that Moses was a surgeoner in Midian? In fact, Moses named his son, born to him in Midian, Gershom, which translates from Hebrew, is a surgeoner there. And you normally name your children, your sons, to the situation from which uh, you come from. Even Israel was considered a sojourner because they entered from Egypt through the wilderness into the land of promise. And Israel was actually a sojourner in the land of the promise. And Deuteronomy 15, 7. And we move on to that. Deuteronomy 15, 7. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. And I think this is the most important application we have of a compassionate God. God shows his compassion to us so that we may show our compassion to others. But it's not others of like ilk. That means people who are prosperous, who are rich, who are capable, who have all the 
essentials of life. Yes, we do that also. But first and foremost, we follow the instructions and the statements of God that you shall show your compassion to those who are poor. You shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. When I was reading this, I looked at PPH and I said, all these years we've been here, what are we doing to open our hand to our brothers, to one another? Open our hands to the needy outside of us. There could be a few needy here, but I think the needy are not in here. The needy are outside here. The needy may not be in Singapore, but the needy certainly are around us. To the poor, we don't have many poor in our country. We have people who can survive. To those who are destitute, you shall open your hand. And this is where the application of God's relationship to us, in his compassion for us, he has reached out to us. He has come with forgiveness to us, with love and benefits and care to us, and we are to show the same to those who are whom he has identified as the poor, the needy, the surgeoners, the fatherless, the destitute. As long as we look at our wealth, our possessions, our earthly security as our life's hope and guarantee, and as long as you do not help the needy, no, don't say that you put in your, your money collection into the collection bag. And you let it go where it goes. And the church will help the needy. Don't say that. You do not help the needy, the poor, the destitute. Then I want to say this. We cannot be a people looking for a heavenly city. Why? Because you are a people looking to Singapore. To America. To Australia. Even to the Middle East. We are looking at these cities in the world which affect our safety, our well-being, but we don't look. But here we don't have an enduring city, Hebrews 13. We are to be surgeoners. We are looking for a city that is to come. And if we are looking for a city that is to come and all our hopes and all our desires and all our fears and all our confidence for the life is, what is ISIS going to do? Uh, what is America going to do? What is Singapore going to do? Where's your hope? Where's my hope? And if we don't look for a city that is to come, then we are not a people who know the benefits and the blessings of the eternal God because he blesses us with redemption. He blesses us with forgiveness. He blesses us with eternal life. He blesses us with something which Man cannot count in dollars and cents, and we should not be doing that in our midst. And this is, without doubt, the most important application of God's compassionate character. We close by reading the next PowerPoint, which is the one before that. We are called to give justice, Psalm 82, to give justice to the weak and the fatherless, to maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, to rescue the weak 
and the needy and to deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Psalm 82. This is the practical application of God's compassion in his character, in his divine character, and in the way he relates to us. Now the second part of our message. Mercy and compassion are rooted in the very character of God in the Old Testament. We find that you read it again and again, you find that the law commands it. Wisdom, the teachings in the Old Testament, the wisdom books teach him. The prophets, they enjoin it. And the Psalms, they speak well, they applaud it. But the fullest expression of God's mercy and compassion, however, as we all know, is all in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's the compassion of God incarnate, which is our topic for today. Jesus Christ's revelation of God in the New Testament is not, as many of us think, a departure from the revelation of God's activities in the Old Testament. He has come to fulfill all that God has proposed in the law, the prophets, the Psalms, and his arrival is the fulfillment of all that is expected in the Psalms of the coming kingdom of God, of the coming Messiah of the Lord, of the eternal kingdom of God. All this has been said, but as the Hebrew writer says, they are only shadows. They are not the real thing. The reality is come, has come when Jesus Christ has come to fulfill what has been only partially promised in the Old Testament. So, I would like us to think as we go back, what is the most instructive book in the New Testament regarding the whole Bible? And my answer to you is that the most instructive book in the New Testament is Hebrews. All the rituals, all the prophecies, all the shadows of the reality which are stated in the Old Testament are found in Hebrews. But he relates them to the person of Jesus Christ who has come to bring about a greater fulfillment in all these things. And Christ is superior to all these things which God has only partially revealed in the whole Old Testament practices. And in the Levitical priesthood, in the sacrificial system, in the, even the temple and the sanctuary, in, even in the angels who worshipped him, Jesus is the one who has come to bring about the final revelation and final word of God. And in his final revelation and final word of God, he shows to us that he follows exactly the very divine revelation which God made of himself, of a forgiving and a compassionate person. Christ perfectly resembles God in every way and performs the very works that God alone can perform. And it clearly shows that Christ is not only merely a creature, not only a man, but he's God himself and he's the eternal creator. Jesus rules as God. 
I want to look at the compassion of Jesus in closing in a few passages in Hebrews. The first one is in Hebrews chapter 4. We have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but we have a high priest who has been tempted like as you are, yet without sin. We stop there. There are several words in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament, that re reveals insight into this marvelous compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here Jesus is described as a sympathetic high priest. The high priest is a person who mediates between man and God. And Jesus is our mediator, a sympathetic high priest who brings the voice of God to man and usher men into the presence of God. And of special interest is this word. We have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. It's, it's translated from the Greek word sympathio, or as we have it in English, sympathy. And sympathy and sim is derived from this Greek word. Someone, we do not have high priest, center of the page, do not have a high priest who is unable to be touched, to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Now you look at the last sentence. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When are our times of needs? For some, not so often. For others, very often. Where do you run to in your time of need? Where do you run? Who do you run to when you want a shoulder to cry on? You know? Who do you complain to when you are unhappy with the situation? You're looking for sympathy. Oh, to your husband, to your wife, to your mother, to your father, or to counsellor, whoever it is. Look at this. We have a high priest who can be touched. And he's the one, as we approach the throne of grace, in our fear, in our feeling that I must get sympathy, we can talk, we can complain, we can argue, we can cry to this high priest before the throne of grace. Hold this in mind because this is a very important practical aspect of our Christianity. Every time I have problems, I run to the seaside. Every time I have problems, I run to my mother. Every time I have problems, I talk to my wife. Yes, I think that is fine and good. But do you know that every time you have problems, you can run to a God who can hear your cries, who can see your tears, who can sympathize with you, and who can care for you. Verse uh, Hebrews 2.17 confirms this. Therefore, yet to be made like his brethren, in all things, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest. A high priest who has compassion, who has relationship with God. A high priest who has power, no doubt. But the emphasis here is become a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, to, make, to be an intercessor for the sins of the people. And this is our Jesus. The Jesus who is our intermediary, 
the Jesus who cares for us, the Jesus who is our high priest. And the proverb is correct. It says, people do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't care how much you know. You might be brilliant and very smart and you may come to the pulpit and speak like me and say, oh, he's got so much knowledge. But if you don't care, you don't have a relationship with people, then you cannot touch their lives. So now we come to the next PowerPoint and we ask this question, does Jesus care why my heart is deeply pained? He cared at Lazarus' death. When afflicted with disease and pain and death, he mourned at the death of Lazarus. John 11. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. When we are grieving, as over the past two months, we've had to attend at least three funerals, and all of them were very close to us including someone also from PPH. When we are grieving the loss of our loved ones, I was so glad when we went to all these funerals and the members of the family said to us, we know he's going to a better place. We know that we have a God who cares for us, who loves us, who will receive us, who will take away all the pains and the fears and the, all, all the sickness and the illness. And he... Or she has received a perfect body in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we are grieving the loss of the loved ones, Luke 7 tells us when the Lord saw the woman, he had compassion on her and he said to her, don't cry. Then he came and touched the open coffin of the young boy. And then those who carried him stood still and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And like Lazarus, they rose up from the dead. They never narrated to us what happened when they died. We don't know the background, but we know that Jesus has the power to raise the dead. But the greater power is that he has the power to welcome us into his eternal home. So Jesus showed tremendous compassion. Compassion for those who reject him. You would think that, ah, yes, this person has nothing to do with, the, with Christ, who wants to just enjoy himself, who doesn't care about God. Leave him alone. Matthew 23, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and the stones, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. And yet they were unwilling and yet Jesus wept for Jerusalem. He looked at the harassed people. He looked at the people who were social outcasts. He looked at them and he cared for them. Jesus practiced the compassion and the love of the eternal God because he was a fulfillment of all that God sought to reveal. There are two passages of which I think you need to read because of time. The first one is found in John 8 where the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And he said to Je they said to Jesus, shall we stone her? John chapter 8. 
and they asked him again and again. And then he wrote something on the floor with his fingers. Then they kept on asking him. And then he said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to stone her. When I read this passage over and over again, I realized something. This woman was caught in adultery. The law says one caught in adultery will be stoned to death. This is the, the law God has revealed to men. But Jesus says, I have come to show not the law. I've come to fulfill more than what the law says. I've come to fulfill over and above what the law says, which is what the Beatitudes is all about in Matthew 5. You have heard it was said to you, such and such a thing, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that a man who lusts after a woman with his mind, he has committed adultery. And he says, I have come to show the law of God. And the law which Jesus came to fulfill was a greater law over and above the stoning of those who commit adultery. The greater law of compassionate, of compassion, of forgiveness, of love and of care. Then again, he stood down, wrote on the ground, and those who heard his words went away one by one until the woman only was left with him. And Jesus asked the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she replied. And he said these words, then neither I, neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. Go now and sin no more. And here's a relationship of compassion and of love over and above the law, which God has revealed to right from the beginning in the Old Testament, and Jesus has come to fulfill. I like the story of the prostitute in Luke 7, to which you have to read. The woman who came and had an had a alabaster perfume and who washed the feet of Jesus with her hair and perfume. And the Pharisee who was there said, you know, waste money. Perfume on this man's feet. And then Jesus told Simon the Pharisee a story. And the story basically is that her sins are many. They are forgiven. So she showed great love. But the person who is forgiven only a little will love a little. And she had great sin as an adulterer, committing adultery. She was a prostitute in the street. She was a street woman. And uh, the Pharisee wanted to trap Jesus. But then, when Jesus told the parable to the Pharisee, to the Pharisee and he showed forgiveness to her, and he said these words, your sins are forgiven. Jesus said to the woman, because you believed, you are saved from your sins. Go in peace. I have tried very often to put this into practice in a pastoral care. And there have been people who have come to me and say, I speak to my church leaders and they say, you cannot do this, you cannot do that. The Bible says this. And that's it. You just go back and suffer and have a hard time. And some have to do with marital relationships. My first statement was you ask your leaders to come and live with you in this house for just a day and you will realize the terrible suffering. The second statement was that over and above the laws of God 
It's not that we don't obey the laws. It's not that we don't keep the laws. It's not that we don't, we try, we, we, we don't be a moral people. It's not that we don't practice righteousness. No, it's nothing to do with that. But over and above that, there's one very important element which has brought you and I to this church and to know Jesus Christ, forgiveness. You have broken every law and I have broken every law. What do you think the Ten Commandments have been given? Not to show that we can fulfill them, but to show that none of these commandments of of the Lord we can fulfill. We cannot fulfill them. And we have broken every law. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, it's spoken to you this way, you know, and so long as you keep a few of the commandments, you're okay. Like the young ruler said to Jesus, and Jesus says, no. You can sell all that you have and give to the poor. It's a relationship. It's a caring for other people. When you show that love and that compassion, then the compassion of Jesus has come to you. Let me close. In Luke 4, when Jesus did the first public reading in the synagogue, the book of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he opened the book and he found the place where it was written in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And you note these words. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then as he read on, he did not complete the whole Isaiah 61 Isaiah 61 closes with to comfort all who mourn. Provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them the crown of beauty instead of ashes and the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. You have received as much as I have received the anointing of Jesus' gospel in our lives. That he has preached to us who are needy, who are poor. That he has proclaimed to us release from captivity of sins and Satan. The recovery of our sight, of our blind sight because we could not see and understand the gospel. And he has set us free so that we have the freedom in the spirit in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you feel it this way? Or do you say, ah, another Sunday come to church? You know? Ah, another day I'll go to work. And you've forgotten this fantastic promises which Jesus has proclaim and which he has given to us and which he continues to give to us. Does Jesus care? I don't know this song. Uh, Singers, do you know this? If not, we'll just read it. Does Jesus care when my heart is pain too deeply for mirth or song as the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. Anybody knows this? Okay, let's read together, alright? Second stanza. Oh yes, a chorus. Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. 
When the days are weary and long night dreary, I know my Saviour cares. Second stanza. Does Jesus care when my way is dark with a nameless dread and fear? As the daylight fades into deep night shades, does he care enough to be near? Stanza 3. No, skip the chorus. Okay, stanza 3. Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? When for my deep grief there is no relief, though my tears flow all the night long. Stanza 4. Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? And my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks. Is it hot with him? Does he sleep? And chorus, oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is harsh with my grief. When the days are weary and long night dreary, I know Let's stand to prayer. Close in prayer. You are a great and wonderful God, dear Father. And we cannot understand your forgiveness and your love for us. All that we know is that even if we sin against you and when we sin against you, you forgive us again and again and again and we thank you. And we thank you also that you give to us your compassion. You give to us a life that you have formed a life of knowing all the benefits